Good day, folks. Pastor Jim Thomas from the Village Chapel here in Nashville, Tennessee, with your daily devotional. Reading from the third of these small hardback books, uh, these rare finds that uh, Kim and her father gave to me. Uh, and I discovered something really fascinating about these. These are the three books that end up turning into Mere Christianity, I think published in 1952. These, uh, these three titles, Broadcast Talks, Christian Behavior, and Beyond Personality, um, published first uh, after a series of broadcast talks that C.S. Lewis did. Uh, during the Second World War, 1939 to 1945. And this is just so fascinating to me. I, I, for those of you that are watching, you'll be able to see this. Uh, this one here, this is uh, Beyond Personality. This is a first edition, and uh, it belonged to a woman named Mary Carson Kushke. And, you know, I just, I just saw her name, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go do a little, little uh, search engine and and see if I can't see if I can't find out who she was. Well, there's somebody with that name uh, who passed away in 2010 at 93 years of age, and it's likely uh, since it's such a unique name, this is likely the lady that these books belong to. Um, she. What's really interesting is she's from Pennsylvania, born in 1916. She was the daughter of the late Arthur W. and Mildred Parkhurst Kushke. She was a U.S. Army veteran who served during World War II. Isn't that amazing? With the Office of Strategic Services in London, England. Isn't that amazing? She was a graduate of the Wilkes-Barre Institute, received her Bachelor of Art degree from Wheaton College. I love this. And her master's degree from the University of Chicago. So fascinating to me where these books came from. And today I'd like to read from the third of them, uh, which, as I say, is called Beyond Personality by C.S. Lewis. This is a chapter uh, that made up one of the broadcast talks that was called Making and Begetting. And this looks to me like it's going to probably take me about 10 or 15 minutes to get through. So uh, I hope you can listen. I hope you have the time to do so, because this is C.S. Lewis, and he's worth listening to. Everyone has warned me, Lewis said back then, not to tell you what I'm going to tell you in these talks. Start off and draw me right in with that kind of a statement. Yeah. They all say, quote, the ordinary listener doesn't want theology. You give him plain practical religion, end quote. I have rejected their advice. I don't think the ordinary listener, listener is such a fool. Theology means the science of God. And I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about God, which are available. You're not children. Why should you be treated like children? In a way, I quite understand why some people are put off by theology. I remember once when I'd been giving a talk to the RAF, an old hard-bitten officer got up and said, I have no use for all that stuff, but mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I've felt him out alone in the desert at night, the tremendous mystery, and that's just why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. Now, in a sense, C.S. Lewis writes, I quite agreed with that man. I think he'd probably had a real experience of God in the desert. 
And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he was really turning from something quite real to something less real. In the same way, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic from the beach and then goes and looks at a map of the Atlantic, he also will be turning from something more real to something less real, turning from real waves to a bit of colored paper. But here comes the point. The map is only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it's based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experience just as real as the one you could have had from the beach. Only while yours would be a single isolated glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you're content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map. But the map's going to be more use than walks on the beach if you want to get to America. Remember, he's writing from England. Well, theology's like the map. Merely learning and thinking about the Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend got in the desert. Doctrines aren't God. They're only a kind of map. But that map's based on the experience of hundreds of people who really were in touch with God, experiences compared with which any thrills or pious feelings you and I are likely to get on our own are very elementary and very confused. And secondly, if you want to get any further, you must use the map. You see, what happened to that man in the desert may have been real and was certainly exciting, but nothing comes of it. It leads nowhere. There's nothing to do about it. In fact, that's just why a vague religion, all about feeling God in nature and so on, is so attractive. It's all thrills and no work, like watching the waves from the beach, but you won't get to Newfoundland by studying the Atlantic that way, and you won't get eternal life by just feeling the presence of God in flowers or music. Neither will you get anywhere by looking at maps without going to sea. And you won't be very safe if you go to sea without a map. In other words, theology is practical, especially now. In the old days, when there wasn't much education or discussion, perhaps it was possible to get on with a very few simple ideas about God. But it isn't now. Everyone reads, everyone hears things discussed. Consequently, if you don't listen to theology, that won't mean that you have no ideas about God. It'll mean that you have a lot of wrong ones. Bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For a great many of the ideas about God, which are trotted out as novelties today, are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. To believe in the popular religion of modern England is simply putting the clock back, like believing the earth is flat. For when you get down to it, isn't the popular idea of Christianity just this, that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher and that if only we look, or if only we took his advice, we might be able to establish a better social order and avoid another war? Now, mind you, that is quite true, but it tells you very little about Christianity, and it has no practical importance at all. It's quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. You needn't go even as far as Christ. If we did all that, 
Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us we'd get on a great deal better than we do. And so what? We never have followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we likely to begin now? Why are we more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he's the best moral teacher? But that makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If we can't take the elementary lessons, isn't it likely we're going to take the most, or is it likely we're going to take the most advanced one? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. Got to say that again. If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There's been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. (laughs) That's amazing. But as soon as you look at any real Christian writings, you find that they're talking about something quite different from this popular religion. They say that Christ is the Son of God, whatever that means. They say that those who give him their confidence can also become sons of God, whatever that means. They say that his death saved us from our sins, whatever that means. There's no good complaining that these statements are difficult. Christianity claims to be telling us about another world, about something behind the world we can touch and hear and see. You may think the claim false, but if it were true, what it tells us would be bound to be difficult, at least as difficult as modern physics, and for the same reason. Now, the point is Christianity, which gives us the greatest shock, is the statement that by attaching ourselves to Christ, we can become sons of God. One asks, aren't we sons of God already? Surely the fatherhood of God is one of the main Christian ideas. Well, in a certain sense, no doubt we are sons of God already. I mean, God has brought us into existence and loves us and looks after us and in that way is like a father. But when the Bible talks of our becoming sons of God, obviously it must mean something different. And that brings us up against the very center of theology. One of the creeds says that Christ is the son of God, begotten, not created. And it adds begotten by his father before all worlds. Will you please get it quite clear that this has nothing to do with the fact that when Christ was born on earth as a man, that man was the son of a virgin. We are not now thinking about the virgin birth. We're thinking about something that happened before nature was created at all, before time began, before all worlds, Christ is begotten, not created. What does it mean? We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is just this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, a man makes a wireless set, or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say a statue. If he's a clever enough carver, he may make a statue, which is very like a man indeed. But of course, it's not a real man. It only looks like one. It can't breathe or think it's not alive. Now, that's the first thing to get clear. When God, what God begets is God. 
Just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God. Just as what man creates or makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not things of the same kind. They are more like statues or pictures of God. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, A statue has the shape of a man, but it's not alive. In the same way, man has, in a sense, I'm going to explain, the shape or likeness of God. But he has not got the kind of life God has. Let us take the first point, man's resemblance to God first. Everything God has made has some likeness to himself. Space is like him in its hugeness. Not that the greatness of space is the same kind of greatness as God's, but it's a sort of symbol of it or a translation of it into non-spiritual terms. Matter is like God in having energy, though again, of course, physical energy is a different kind of thing from the power of God. The vegetable world is like him because it is alive and he is the living God. But life in this biological sense is not the same as the life there is in God. It is only a kind of symbol or shadow of it. When we come on to the animals, we find other kinds of resemblance in addition to biological life. The intense activity and fertility of the insects, for example, is a first dim resemblance to the unceasing activity and the creativeness of God. In the higher mammals, we get the beginnings of instinctive affection. That isn't the same thing as the love that exists in God, but it is like it, rather in the way that a picture drawn on a flat piece of paper can nevertheless be like a landscape. <laughs> when we come to mankind, the highest of the animals, we get to the completest resemblance to God which we know. And then in parentheses, he says, there may be creatures in other worlds who are more like God than man is, but we don't know about that. And then he closes the parentheses. I love it when he does that kind of thing. What a great imagination he had. Man not only lives, but loves and reasons. Biological life reaches its highest known level in humanity. But what man in his natural condition has not got is spiritual life. The higher and different sort of life that exists in God. We use the same word life for both. But if you thought that both must therefore be the same sort of thing, that would be like thinking that the greatness of space and the greatness of God were the same sort of greatness. In reality, the difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important that I'm going to give them two distinct names. The biological sort, which comes to us through nature, and which, like everything else in nature, is always tending to run down and decay so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air and water and food, etc., is bios, the spiritual life which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole natural universe is zoe. Bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place, or a statue, and a man. A man who changed from having bios to having Zoe 
would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And here's the last and final paragraph. It's so powerful. And that is just precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. So said C.S. Lewis in Beyond Personality, the third section of the book, Mere Christianity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing writing, these thoughts, and all that they point to. Thank you for giving us life in the first place. Um, None of us had anything to do with our coming into being, and so we have to simply bow humbly and say, thank you for giving us life. Uh, Lord, thank you for the bios. Thank you also, though, for Zoe, the opportunity for spiritual life that you have put on offer to everyone within sound of my voice and to myself as well. You've, You've offered this to us, Lord. Please now grant to us the faith that leads to repentance, that we might lift up the empty hands of faith and receive from you what we cannot achieve on our own. Give us the gift of life in Jesus' name. Give us spiritual life that we might live in union with Christ. From this day forward, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Have a great day. This podcast is a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. Don't forget to also subscribe to one of our other podcasts, Curate's Corner with Kim Thomas. Every Friday throughout the season of Lent, join Kim as she looks at the story of Jesus' last week as told through classic art, prayers, and scriptures. You can subscribe to her podcast on all major platforms, including the Village Chapel YouTube channel, and you can find accompanying resources at lent.thevillagechapel.com. If you find this daily devotional beneficial, leave a review and share it with friends and family. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com. Artwork for this podcast by Kim Thomas, music by Phil Kagey.